0: Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair. As part of the CBC's 50th anniversary celebrations, this Ideas programme is about public broadcasting in Canada. Tonight we turn to the early years of television, years of both triumph and tribulation for the CBC. When television in Canada began in 1952, the CBC was a small, coherent organisation with a fairly clear sense of its role in Canadian life. Television changed that. And 15 years later, some of the veterans of radio were still wondering what had hit them. Television was exciting and popular. And outside the range of the American border stations, the CBC had the feel to itself. In Quebec, particularly, the Téléromans or TV novels as they were called, attracted huge and enthusiastic audiences.
1: 75% out of the 6 million French Canadians were tuned to, to, to Radio Canada on, on the same time to the extent that stores would close and that uh, you couldn't get service in a gas station because people were, were watching television.
0: Compared to radio, the scale of television was enormous. It needed more staff, more hardware and bigger budgets. And the CBC grew explosively. For a few years, it doubled in size almost annually. Unions appeared. The informal style of management appropriate to a smaller organization stopped working. And in 1959, the CBC suffered the most serious and most revealing strike in its history. On a bitter day in late December, Montreal producers walked off the job.
2: There was a, almost an exact split between the French-speaking people and the English-speaking people on the issue. And I, I, I think it was one reason why that strike became a legend because at one point it became a a, a real confrontation between the two solitudes.
0: The CBC had barely recovered from the producer's strike when it was thrown into turmoil again. This time the issue was the cancellation of a program called preview commentary. The producers of the talks and public affairs department suspected political interference and they resigned en masse.
3: What really happened was that one chap came in, at least he, he, uh, this is the story I got, that he wrote his commentary the night before, got drunk and went roaring down the halls of Parliament saying, I'm going to get that so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so, which happened to Mr. Tiefenbaker. And I suppose uh, my Irish blood got up a little bit, and I finally called Mr. Jennings into my office and they said, look, we're going to terminate this darn thing as at the end of this week. The
0: Preview Commentary Affair, The Montreal Producers Strike, and The Early Days of Television. Part 3 of our series on public broadcasting in Canada, written and presented by David Cayley. Mr. Chairman, Your
3: Excellency and friends of television in Montreal. There are many television sets in Canada, something like 110,000 at the present time these have been receiving programs from the United States. But this evening Canada starts on her own.
4: September the 6th 1952. Dr. J.J. McCann, the minister responsible for the CBC, officially opens the first television station in Canada, CBFT in Montreal. The next night Toronto goes on the air. Within two years the number of Canadian stations will mushroom to 23. Six of them owned and operated by the CBC, the rest privately owned affiliates. Unfortunately, the CBC got into television rather late in the game. By 1952, the American networks had already been reaching cities like Vancouver and Toronto for a number of years. American programs were shaping the tastes and expectations of the Canadian audience long before Canadian programs were even available. The situation was essentially the same one the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission had faced 20 years before. J. Alphonse Met made Canada's first television set in 1932. Between 1948 and 1952, he coordinated the CBC's planning for the new medium. He went on to become general manager in 1953 and president five years later. Looking back, he sees great significance in the Americans' head start.
5: The Americans were already being received easily, giving something like 12 hours of programming a day, and we started with three hours. And we had to really speed up all our plans. We had to do things about three times more rapidly than we had planned. The demand was so great for uh, receivers and then for program. It's like if we'd had a tiger by the tail, we were not really able to control the development of TV in such a way that we could do everything perfectly like the, the, the administration, the training of the staff. All we could do was to try to get the beast to go in the right direction and uh, hire people anybody we could find that you know had theater experience or film experience or some of the technicians had taken courses and uh, the rest we had to do ourselves and uh, during that time with so much work to do we were not able to give the amount of introduction to the CBC that we would have wished, and we paid for that later. The people coming in were interested really in one thing, and that was to make television programs. They didn't care whether it was CBC or any other institution. So therefore, the old sort of religious approach that existed in radio could not be duplicated in TV.
4: Alphonse Ouimet began his career with the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission in 1934. And to him, as to many others of his generation, the new television people seemed to lack loyalty to the CBC as an institution. Nor did they quite share the older generation's sense of the CBC's civilizing mission. And this generational conflict was at the root of many of the CBC's troubles over the next 15 years. Harry Boyle was also a radio veteran, having joined the CBC's farm department in 1942. He believes that part of the problem was the scale of television technology itself, that somehow, instead of the CBC assimilating television, television assimilated the CBC. To be honest with you, I don't think anyone ever
6: sat down to say to themselves, here's a new media, how can we use it, how can we best use it, we're going to control it. We're going to make it work for us. Television was a medium which they accepted largely in terms of of uh, what it was already in the United States. And then by a kind of tinkering, you administered a bit of the CBC public service doctrine to it. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't created as radio was created as an answer uh, on its own almost. People went scurrying around to find out what was going on in Hollywood, what was going on in London, what was going on in Paris, and how can we adapt to that? And, you know, the mistake that was made, I'll give you a perfect example, was that Andrew Allen was a brilliant man. I mean, he had the creative touch, and he had been great in radio. In place of using him as a resource person who could give you a kind of philosophical answer in terms of what television might be, they shoved him into a studio with producers who were half his age and he was supposed to learn how to do television. It's not to, it was easy. There was a myth going around that television was a difficult medium and that you had to be young and strong and that it would kill people
0: and all this. Sort of it was a bunch of baloney, but everybody swallowed it. I wanted to be a writer, and on-camera performer, and I wanted to sign up for the uh, CBC's television course. Lister Sinclair. And was turned down by two the two young men who were then preparing us for television, Maver Moore and Stuart Griffiths, because I was too old. I was 31, and it had been resolved that nobody over the age of 30 was to be allowed in because television was a young person's game. So what I did was sit in the back of control books a lot and watched all kinds of things going on, such as camera- live, remember, all the time, live. Cameras breaking down in in mid-show, which they often did. And Robert Allen, who was a very good studio director, uh, ingeniously improvising with the remaining cameras to keep the thing rolling along all the time. And another director, who shall be nameless, when the camera broke down, instead of immediately calling, you know, camera two, take over the shots of camera four, and things of that kind, turning indignantly to all the other people in the booth and saying, a camera's broken down. We had a meeting about that.
4: (laughs) CBC television was flying by the seat of its pants, and many people remember those years for their loose, wide-open feel. Saturday Night editor Bob Fulford was around the CBC a good deal in the 1950s, and he says that it was a marvelous period not because the productions of the time would impress us much today, but because of the atmosphere. There was a one time in English Canada when there was a
0: sense of adventure about a mass medium, a sense that everything was there to be done, whatever you wanted to put on the air would get on if it had quality, if it had an argument behind it. Sometimes it got on without having a good argument behind it. But the... The CBC television at that time, for the last time in its career, was anxious for new scripts, desperate for new performers. They were pulling them in from everywhere they could get them. It was routine to do an opera. To do, We'll say, okay, we'll do Tosca. So it's, so it's three hours. We'll put it on live. I remember the first television, Hamlet. And uh, I don't know what, what I think of it now. I thought it was quite beautiful then. Yeah. And a lot of plays were coming out of Toronto. And Toronto television in that period seemed a creative center. It was natural for the leading
4: artists of the day to be somehow connected with the CBC. This creative flowering was even more noticeable in Montreal. English Canadian television grew up in the shadow of Hollywood in New York. Radio Canada had the feel to itself, and when it brought to life stories like the Plouffe family, the audience responded with passionate enthusiasm. Fernand Quirion was one of the original television producers in Montreal.
1: Television was so popular that uh, my own show, for instance, got one of the highest ratings, which was 75% of the total audience. So when you, <laughs> when you consider today's, today's ratings, which are somewhere between what, 20, 25% at the most, that was a, a serial, a drama serial, which was on every Monday night at 8 o'clock. Now, and you consider that 75% out of the 6 million Canadian were tuned to, to, to Radio-Canada on, on the same time, to the extent that stores would close and that uh, you couldn't get service in a gas station because people were, were watching television.
4: The beginnings of television also corresponded with the reorganization of the CBC's administration. Before 1953, the CBC had been fairly decentralized in an ad hoc sort of way. The nominal head office was in Ottawa, and that's where the chairman of the board, Davidson-Dunton, was. The general manager, Dr. Frigon, had established himself and as much of the rest of the administration as he could in Montreal, and the English network was basically run from Toronto. When Alphonse Ouimet became general manager in 1953, he tried to centralize the growing corporation in Ottawa.
5: Dunton could see that this was not a very good way of doing things. So when I became general manager, he asked me, he said, what do you propose to do? Are you going to remain in Montreal? I said, I am not going to be a general manager in Montreal. I'm general manager for the whole thing. The head office is here, I'm moving here. And we tried to move more people, but then we hit resistance. I tried to get the general direction of programs to Ottawa. I was not successful. By the way, my idea was that they would be responsible for both the French and English output. Well, I tried. and I got one or two who move, and the others refused. I decided to have a little revolt on my hands. Lambert in Toronto got the education people behind him and immediately it became a political thing. I was trying to really impose, they didn't say French, authority over what was happening in Toronto. I had the same problem in Montreal. Le Devoir started a bunch of articles saying that we were trying to take over control of the French network in Ottawa, therefore English. And so we were again with the problems of Canada.
4: One of the people we met did convince to come to Ottawa was Neil Morrison, then the supervisor of talks and public affairs. He had once shared Wimette's dream that French and English could be somehow integrated within the CBC. But his experience had led him to doubt it.
7: The broadcasting system in Canada, in effect, strengthened the two solitudes. I mean, it strengthened Quebec nationalism and French Canada for a variety of reasons. And I think it developed uh, an English-Canadian nationalism, which English-Canadians regarded as Canadian nationalism. The two networks never really functioned together. I had gone, studied and lived in Montreal before the war and after I joined the CBC and I was very much interested in Quebec. I, I made friends there. I got to know people at the University of Montreal, at Laval, and so on. I guess I was what the French the Canadians or the Quebecois called a bonentontiste in those days, which wasn't a very good word from their point of view. And I tried to supervise, I was the national supervisor of talks in public affairs, programs on the French network and on the English network in talks in public affairs about domestic politics, foreign policy, and so on, uh, literary criticism, all that sort of thing. It just didn't work. And I finally had to realize that from Toronto, you could not really effectively keep in touch with Quebec and what was going on in French Canada.
4: You couldn't do it very effectively from Ottawa either, as it turned out. And Morrison believes there were other disadvantages to being in Ottawa as well.
7: In Ottawa, you're out of touch with the main, well, the the raison d'etre, the purpose, the only thing that matters in broadcasting, the programs. Furthermore, you were right uh, next door, right across the street from the government. So you couldn't walk down Wellington Street from the head office in the Victoria building to the shadow cafeteria, without running into uh, senior civil servants or members of uh, the government or the opposition, and you constantly get you know, criticism. They'd say, well, you know, what did you do that for uh, on the network? So, and furthermore, in Ottawa, ministers and deputy ministers are much more important than they are anywhere else in the country. So th- th- you have an atmosphere which makes it difficult to maintain the autonomy and independence of a broadcasting system.
4: The disadvantages of being in Ottawa were forcibly brought home to the corporation's senior managers on December 29, 1958, when 74 Montreal television producers walked off the job. The strike began as an expression of dissatisfaction with local television management, but it ended up as a symbol of Quebec's alienation and an important precursor of the Quiet Revolution. Television production in Montreal had grown explosively from 1952 on. Unlike the English network, which imported about 50% of its programs from the United States, the French network was 80% homegrown. Producers worked killingly long hours to keep up. At first, it was wild and exhilarating. There was a story in Montreal that one producer used to go to bed saying, Thank you, God, for giving me a million-dollar electric train to play with. But then things began to go sour. Management began to encroach on what the producers considered their prerogatives, and relations grew strained. The producers complained of arbitrary assignments, intolerable workloads, and interference with their creative control of production. They also disliked what they saw as the dictatorial style of the director of television, André Ouimet, and the way in which they felt he manipulated them in contract negotiations. Fernand Quirion.
1: Producers in Montreal in those days were all contract producers. Mind you, I had to resign a permanent job with the corporation as a radio man. Yeah, they forced me to resign to become a television producer, a, fr- a freelance television producer. They had decided that they didn't want any permanent staff, permanent producers on, in, in those days. They were all, we were all contract people. So imagine very well that if the producer didn't behave correctly with, with his area ahead, uh, he, he had a lot of problem when the time came to renew his contract. So you had to be nice, you know, in order to uh, get another contract. Uh, now the other point is that Andre met, as you mentioned before, uh, it seemed that he did it purposely never to call you to negotiate your contract before the termination of the contract. He'd let it run for three or four or five and sometimes at least six months after the expiration date. So it, it put the producer in a in a, a very <laughs> difficult position, not knowing that, uh, whether his services would be retained for next fall or not. So it's, uh, that created the whole actually um, anguish I would say in the producers' group. And this is why they came quickly to the idea that they had to have collective uh, bargaining. And to have collective bargaining, you have to have a union.
4: On December the 5th, 1958, in the midst of a heavy snowstorm, the producers held a meeting at the Windsor Hotel. They were addressed by a representative of the Catholic trade union, the CTCC. Originally known rather derisively as the syndicat des curés, the priests' union, the CTCC had been involved in the famous strikes at Asbestos and Murdochville and was moving toward the center of the political stage in Quebec. One of its main organizers was Jean Marchand. Pierre Trudeau and Gérard Pelletier were closely allied. The meeting lasted until the early hours of the morning. Some of the producers were meeting each other for the first time, some also were reluctant about the idea of a trade union, including Fernand Quirion, whom you've just been listening to. But after considering their options, most felt that unionization was the only expedient solution for their problems. And two weeks later, the union was formed.
1: I was elected president, and Sylvester became secretary treasurer, and Fugère became vice president, and uh, we went to see André Wumet, who was our manager in Montreal, and we said, well, too bad, uh, we had to do it. Now we are organized and we have a union and we are affiliated to the uh, CTCC and uh, we want a bargaining. We want to have uh, in any future a bargaining session. And he said, never, over my dead body, you'll never get that. You are managers, you are not entitled to collective bargaining. And, and I think that, that was the spark.
4: On December 29th, the producers walked out. They thought the strike would last only a few days at most, and then everything would be settled. CBC president Alphonse Huimet was on holiday in Florida.
5: The day after New Year, I think, I got a phone call from Bushnell, who was the vice president, and he told me that uh, the Montreal producers had walked out. You know, I couldn't believe it. So anyway, I came back the same day, flew back, and I was in Montreal that same night. There was a delegation of producers that met me at the station. And they, they said how happy they were to see me, that I could really solve their problem immediately. And they'd had trouble before. And, but if I was there, I had the authority to solve their problem. Anyway, it was a cold night. It was uh, probably zero or below zero. And we walked from the Windsor Station to the old Ford Hotel where we had our offices. And I was really surprised to see so many people just freezing outside on a picket line. And there you had many of our... Artists, some of the best-known artists we had. We had some of the, some of the writers. I always remember Set uh, was there, and he was a rather frail person. I remember him. He had a sort of woolen scarf turned around his neck. And when I saw all these people, I said, "Gee, will they all c- catch pneumonia?" And as I went to shake hands with them. I told him, I said, look, you're crazy. Don't walk outside. Come in the building. We had a big lobby in the Ford Hotel. And somebody just pushed me and said, ah, you can't do that. They'll accuse you of being paternalistic, I think was the word. Anyway, they didn't want to come in. And uh, apparently I was not supposed to invite them. So they didn't come in.
4: Over the next few days, Wimet tried his best to fix things. Unfortunately, the director of television in Montreal, André Wimet, was his brother, which certainly made life more complicated. And André had never advised Ottawa of just how serious the situation in Montreal was. So, though the producers respected Alphonse, they weren't prepared at this late date to simply abandon their union and trust him to solve their problems. What followed was a sort of dialogue of the
5: death. I couldn't find out what their grievances was. I asked them, is it money? Do you want more money? Is is it the hours? What is it? And they said, look, uh, we are working closely with the Union and we shouldn't be really bargaining with you. Well, I said, get the the representative of the Union if you want talk without them. So we started to talk, not with the producers, unfortunately. They wouldn't talk. It was the union representative. And uh, as far as he was concerned, he didn't want to discuss grievances. He wanted to discuss only one thing. That was the right of the producers to associate for bargaining purposes. Immediately, it was a question of principle.
4: And it was there that the matter stuck. The CBC insisted that the producers were management, that under federal law they could not form a trade union, and that since the CBC was a federal agency constrained by federal law, that was that. The CBC also argued that affiliation with a union, any union, but particularly one so political as the CTCC, Was a violation of the producers' political neutrality, and political neutrality, in Ottawa's view, was the keystone of the CBC's whole philosophy. The producers, for their part, argued that collective bargaining was a basic right, that management unions were legal in Quebec, which was true under a 1941 statute called the Professional Syndicates Act, and that they were Quebecers first. This left the rest of the employees of Radio Canada with a fundamental choice to make. Jean-Louis Roux was then the local president of the French Writers' Union and well known to the Quebec audience as Ovid in the Plouffe family. He says the significance of the strike lies in the way they made
2: this choice. There was a very exact split between the French-speaking people and the English-speaking people. And uh, all the uh, English-speaking people involved, or practically all the English-speaking people involved, decided to pass the picket line and to, to honor their individual contracts uh, with CBC. On the other hand, practically all the French-speaking involved decided not to pass the, the picket line. So there was a, a real cultural leverage there. And I, I, I think it was one reason why that strike became a legend because at one point it became a a, a real confrontation between the two solitudes most
4: of the french employees of radio canada honored the producers picket lines they did so against the wishes of their own union head offices and since these head offices were in toronto or new york this was a further source of bitterness and division Barbara Fairburn is the author of a thorough study of the producer's strike. It's a master's thesis she wrote at Carleton called The Gentleman's Strike.
8: The international uh, head offices wrote to tell the employees that what they were doing was wrong. The writers' union was expelled from the, uh, the English parent union in Toronto. The union that Jean Louis Roux was head of at the time. Another group of employees who belonged to Artec formed spontaneously L'Artec Libre. They simply disassociated and declared themselves a separate union. And uh, the CLC had advised the Montreal locals that what they were doing was in contravention of their collective agreements. Despite all this, the unions, mo- the majority of the unionized personnel, insisted on holding on and staying out for the greater part of the dispute.
4: Respect for the producers' picket lines reduced Radio Canada to a skeleton, an endless diet of films peppered with the occasional newscast. Negotiations were going nowhere. And on January 22nd, a frustrated CBC management issued an ultimatum. Employees who did not return to their jobs immediately would be presumed to have resigned. Ron Fraser, the Director of Public Relations, told a press conference that the CBC, quote, was prepared to start from scratch, if necessary, to rebuild the French network. But support for the strike held. The employees argued that crossing the picket lines exposed them to the risk of violence, including moral violence. And in retrospect, says Jean-Louis Hu,
2: they were right. There was a chap here in Montreal whose name was Pierre Stein who acted as the reader for the news on television during the uh, nine weeks or so of the strike, and that chap had to leave Montreal immediately after the strike was ended, left for Campbellton, and we never heard of him again, up, up to date. If you don't call that moral violence, what is moral violence? And because all that was very emotional, the people who refused to pass the picket line not only didn't pass the picket line, but join the picket line. So at some points, the picket line was uh, heavy enough and important enough to make an entire circle around the block of uh, Mackay, St. Catherine, Bishop, and uh, Dorchester.
8: The strike involved people who would be as familiar to uh, the everyday Quebec person as um, somebody on Dynasty or Dallas. It would be like having Bobby Ewing carrying a picket sign walking up and down in front of the CBC building. It was something that was really, truly scandalous.
4: The involvement of Radio Canada's television stars made this a strike with a difference. To support the strikers and their sympathizers, the performers put on benefits, which they called difficulté temporaire. Trouble is temporary, the words which had appeared on the television screens of Quebec when the strike began.
8: They traveled all over Quebec to uh, hockey stadiums and bingo halls and places like that, and they put on these things, traveling the buses and taking no money for it to raise money to support the strikers, and people came out in their thousands to see these things. The papers at the time were full of ads for them, and they became very, very popular in, in a way that perhaps they were replacing what the people weren't getting. People would get up and do little sketches and skits relating to the, uh, the troubles, but as well reflecting the, the characters that they were playing.
2: Many of the people involved were earning very good salaries, including the producers themselves. So one, one, one evening, we, I, I was myself on the picket line that evening and um, near midnight, there was a car stopping in front of uh, Radio-Canada. It was a uh, shiny red uh, sports car and the producer came out of it with a bar and offered cognac to everyone. And one of the policemen were there because there there were always a couple of policemen there watching the scene and being ready to intervene if necessary you know watched the scene and said christ what are they wishing to have do they want the building itself or what (laughs) because he he was amazed to see that the strikers were able to uh, drive sports cars and uh, drink cognac etc etc and uh, Yes, that, that was uh, one, one of the differences. And there were so many uh, uh, well-known people involved that the public came to watch the, the picket line o- only to see uh, uh, Jean Duceppe and Denise Peltier and uh, myself or some other people uh, w- walking on uh, the picket line.
4: The Radio Canada strike began as a labor dispute but it had nationalistic overtones almost from the beginning. There was division along language lines over whether to support the strike, then the splits in the various unions. There was the fact that most of the Ottawa managers with whom the strikers had to deal spoke only English, a situation that was aggravated when an exhausted Alphonse Wimet suffered a heart attack on January 19th, leaving the vice president, Ernie Bushnell, in charge in Ottawa. Some of the producers and their allies began to feel that the CBC and the federal government were indifferent to the situation in Montreal. They planned a rally in Ottawa on January 27th and chartered a special train to take them there. René Lévesque was then the host of a popular public affairs program called Point de Mire and a supporter of the strike. He recently recalled their trip to Ottawa on CBC Radio's Morningside.
6: There was one thing that I remember. I, I can't forget. Was going to Ottawa with a few hundred uh, of the guys during the strike, and knowing damn well that the whole of the French network was, you know, uh, going to pieces, and finding such complete indifference. That was the Diefenbaker's government at that time, and the guy we met was Michael Starr. He was Minister of Labour, mm-hmm. and I. But anyway, it was like. Uh, You know, a man from Mars, as far as we were concerned, he couldn't care less. He he had nice words, you know, like politicians will have uh, when they want to get rid of you. But there was no understanding of what was going on and the implications. So uh, I got mad. (laughs)
4: Lévesque was not alone in his anger. Roger Lemelin, author of the popular television series The Plouffe Family, wrote in Le Devoir, When you consider with what almost serene eyes approaching indifference, the heads of the CBC at Ottawa and the central government itself are letting the situation grow worse. You ask yourself if the federal political play is not to see the means of expression of French culture weakened. Le Devoir's editor, André Lorondeau, was similarly inclined to interpret the strike in nationalistic terms. Girard Pelche, like Lévesque, the host of a popular Radio Canada public affairs show, also wrote in defense of the strike. Jean Marchand again and again rallied the strikers with fiery speeches, and Pierre Trudeau, his leg broken in a skiing accident, encouraged the picketers from a taxi. The list of strike supporters was a virtual who's who of the new Quebec intelligentsia. But Lévesque went the farthest. In an article in Le Devoir, he declared that had the strike happened on the English network, it would have lasted no more than half an hour. Some of us, he went on, will come out of this permanently disgusted with a certain ideal called national unity. The strike had politicized him. A year later he would stand for office and give Quebec the slogan, Maître chez nous, masters in our own house. Part of Lévesque's anger came from the increasing nastiness of the strike's final weeks. A few days before he had been arrested in what amounted to a police riot on Dorchester Street and there had been other incidents as well, says Barbara Fairburn.
8: Violence began to escalate. There had always been a certain amount of hard feelings about people crossing the picket lines. There began to be beatings. Neil Leroy, who was head of the the Canadian uh, Authors and Artists Union that expelled the French Language Union, was beaten up in Montreal by two assailants. He didn't press charges. The people were just let go. There were tire slashings. People had their uh, windows broken. People were threatened. There were beatings on the picket line. On March 2nd, there was a riot in front of the uh, CBC building in downtown Montreal on Dorchester Street the marchers had assembled uh, from a theater where they'd been holding one of their rallies to march to the, uh, the Radio Canada building on Dorchester. And they were going to stop in front and sing all Canada, sort of an ironic statement. And what happened was that the mounted police who had in the past accompanied them on these marches, which were a regular thing, charged the picketers, um, arrested 29 of them. A lot of people were beaten. René Levesque was one of the people arrested amongst uh, other famous people and uh, apparently it was on the strength of a rumor that CBC management had communicated to the police that the picketers intended to rush the CBC building and hold it until a settlement occurred. It was an escalation of of many things, the fact that the negotiations were taking so long.
4: When police attacked the strikers on March 2nd, the issue was in fact nearly settled. Five days later, the final agreement was signed, and everyone returned to work on March 9th. The producers had won the right to collective bargaining, but they agreed not to affiliate with the CTCC or any other union, a compromise which could be interpreted as a victory by both sides. But the bitterness and the intensity of the strike lingered on. The political consequences in Quebec were permanent. So were the repercussions within the CBC. The estrangement between French and English continued, and the two networks grew further apart. Relations between management and the unions remained strained. For the producers themselves, there were some gains. They had their union, the most contentious managers were removed, and the producers' grievances were eventually dealt with. But the cost to the overall morale of Radio Canada, says Alphonse Wimet, was very high.
5: I think that it hurt the CBC very greatly, very deeply. We never got the old spirit back in Montreal for another, I don't know whether we ever got it back. It was so great that just before the strike and so bad for so many years after. There was a lot of friction between those who remained at work and those who walked out. And uh, the effect it had on the rest of the CBC were bad. We had a new board. I had had just one board meeting in December since my appointment as president in November, and we had that strike. So you can imagine what my board was thinking. Then we had problems in the rest of the country because it created a greater chasm between the French network and the English networks, because the English networks, the staff refused to support the strike in Montreal. So it had all kinds of overtones that complicated our life.
4: There's not much in common between Alphonse we met and Jean-Louis Roux on the question of the producer's strike. We met believes it was unnecessary and destructive. Roux believes it was a just struggle for a
2: principle worth fighting for
4: but they do agree on one point. Things at Radio Canada were never quite the same.
2: I, for one, and uh, I think it's it's the case for many, many people involved in the strike, didn't find back, when I went back working for CBC, the same enthusiasm and the same involvement that... Uh, existed before the strike. There wasn't the same feeling as a team as we used to have before the strike, and I don't think that feeling was never, never found again. The CBC's English-speaking
4: producers took no part in the strike at Radio Canada. They had an association, but of the tame in-house variety which the French producers had rejected, calling it a club de pêche, a fishing club. And in fact, there were a lot of hard feelings in Montreal over the lack of support from their English-speaking colleagues. Ironically, only three months later, a group of English producers was also up in arms over a deeply held principle. At issue was the cancellation of a series called Preview Commentary, four-minute opinion pieces by Ottawa journalists heard after the 8 o'clock news. The man responsible for the cancellation was Ernie Bushnell, then the acting president. Alphonse Met was still out of action following his heart attack. In an interview recorded in 1976, Bushnell recalled why he did it.
3: What really happened was that one chap came in, at least he, he uh, this is the story I got, that he wrote his commentary the night before got drunk and went roaring down the halls of Parliament saying, I'm going to get that so-and-so-and-so-and-so, which happened to Mr. Tiefenbaker. Well, I didn't hear it. I was up at my cottage at the time, up to Gatineau. I didn't hear it, but I did get a call from Mr. Nolan's office, not Mr. nolan saying, Mr. Bushnell, did you hear that commentary this morning? I said, no, I didn't, but I got the script. And I suppose uh, my Irish blood got up a little bit and I was fed up with uh, listening to and getting all these phone calls and criticism from everyone, all parties. And I finally called Mr. Jennings into my office and they said, look, we're going to terminate this darn thing as at the end of this week and we're going to Canadian press and get them to give a report of what happened in Parliament the day before. These smart alecks think they can get away with this This may teach them a lesson they can't. They were just taking advantage, as a matter of fact, of expressing opinions, political opinions, of their own. It wasn't a fair analysis.
4: Unfortunately for Bushnell, the program was supposed to be opinion, and at the time, opinions in the Ottawa Press Corps were running strongly against Mr. Diefenbaker and his government. It was a problem, recalls Gordon Cullingham, then the producer responsible for preview commentary, of which the talks department was painfully aware.
9: There weren't very many uh, real conservatives who were uh, good at this kind of thing and interested in it, who could write and give you sharp commentary. Uh, Most of the people who were good at it uh, tended to be liberals. Well, that was a permanent kind of a thing, but it was exacerbated then. What wasn't permanent, but was very strong then, was that even the conservative commentators were critical of Diefenbaker. So you start with a small group and then they disappear. So you're just scrambling all the time So as a result, you know, it's hard on your standards. People were getting on the air who, only because they were conservatives, because it was just so, uh, such a desperate struggle to get someone who wasn't critical of this prime minister. Nobody
4: was pro-Diefenbaker who could uh, write a coherent sentence. Despite this difficulty, Frank Pierce, the supervisor of talks and public affairs, felt the department's position was defensible. They had bent over backwards to be fair to Diefenbaker and his government. And so, when Piers was handed notice of the program's cancellation in Ottawa on June 15th, he was in no mood to acquiesce. He returned to Toronto to consult his colleagues. By evening, he was back in Ottawa, accompanied by his deputies, Bernard Trotter and Hugh Gillis, and seeking an explanation for what had happened. Bushnell wouldn't see them, but they learned from Bud Walker, the director of English Networks, that the reasons for the cancellation were political. Gradually, Piers pieced together the story. Things had been going badly for the CBC. There had been the producer's strike, a row over a TV drama which scandalized conservative Catholic opinion, a hostile parliamentary committee, and a new government whose commitment to public broadcasting seemed pretty shaky. The president, Alphonse Ouimet, was away, and the burden had fallen on the shoulders of the acting president.
10: Ernest Bushnell, was uh, apparently uh, uh, not in terribly good shape as he let everyone know subsequently he had a serious drinking problem at that time. He had been uh, pilloried by the members of the Parliamentary Committee, and um, his bulwark, as he saw it, was the minister, George Nowlin, with whom he was personally on good terms. They were very friendly, drinking companions partly. And uh, he thought that he was doing the CBC a favor by giving in to the uh, demand, which probably originated from the prime minister's office, that people who appeared on this tiny little commentary, which made use of Ottawa correspondence of various newspapers, the feeling had been that these commentaries were too hostile to the prime minister, and he was a great listener to programs of that kind, particularly anything that reflected on him, and he resented them. (laughs) So, he obviously, he told the the minister, get rid of the use of those Ottawa journalists.
4: Satisfied that the cancellation was the result of what they called clandestine political interference, Piers and his colleagues returned to Toronto.
10: We um, spread the news among other program departments, other supervisors. I had meetings over the weekend with them. Bushnell came down to try to quiet the uh, troops and uh, tried to give an explanation which in effect was a plea for understanding of what a, a difficult political position he was in, how he was trying to save the corporation, and the supervisors thought that this was contrary to all that he had ever stood for when he had been in Toronto as the Director General of Programs. Uh, in effect, pleaded with him to um, reverse the decision. He uh, indicated that he would not. Uh, At the same time, I had been in touch with a member of the board of directors, thinking this would be the last court of appeal. The board was having a meeting, which happened to be in Toronto, starting on a Monday morning. I met with one of the directors who placed the matter before the board, and the board upheld Bushnell rather than us. When I heard that, uh, Gillis Trotter and I met once again and we decided to submit our resignations and try to persuade the other members of the department to stay so that uh, there would be uh, some continuity because we thought we were out for good, but we wanted to make the whole thing public and we didn't th- thought it wasn't ethical to fight a battle as we fully intended to fight it in the press and uh, elsewhere while being on staff.
4: Despite his having discouraged it, Piers' entire staff resigned with him, TV as well as radio producers. Soon the resignation spread to other cities. 35 more ready to join CBC walkout read the front page headline in the Toronto Star. Helen Karskallen was then a program organizer in the National Talks and Public Affairs Department.
11: I can remember uh, in my office I shared with several people One of my colleagues said, what are you going to do, Helen? And I said, I'm going to resign, of course. Aren't you? And she said, well, I don't know. She said, you'll find it easy to get another job, but I won't find it as easy to get another job as you would. And she was thinking about it twice. She resigned uh, in the end, but she was having a few doubts. I never had any doubts. The principle was, was important to me. And um, when we resigned, we met every day, in fact, all day, in different people's homes. And the whole bunch of us, was probably the, f- the first time we'd all, the whole department, had been together. And this was a crisis, and we all were behind each other. We were all thinking as one, really, on this issue. And it was very heady.
4: There was heavy pressure on the board to reverse its decision. The mass resignations had produced front page publicity. Organizations ranging from the Anglican Church to the Canadian Federation of Agriculture were asking that the program be reinstated. Davidson-Dunton, former chairman of the board, issued a terse statement calling the board's stand a sellout. And finally, on the third day of their meetings, the board relented. It put the program back on the air and invited all those who had resigned to return to work. So the political independence of the CBC was reaffirmed, and Frank Piers became something of a hero.
9: The way Piers performed in this situation was very, very impressive. All of us came to regard him as a quintessential leader that we were quite prepared to go down with. He was, always had been and certainly then remained a, a figure of absolute austere integrity and uh, just the person, the kind of person you never, you knew was never going to sell you out. So he remains for me and I would think a lot of uh, our colleagues uh, to this day uh, a hero of Canadian broadcasting.
4: To have acted altogether like that and to have won, mm.
11: did that give the department a certain energy? Uh, oh, it was tremendous, tremendous. And the pride you felt that you had won on principle, you know. (laughs) For uh, particularly for, uh, I suppose, somebody like me who was really wasp, principle was very important. I mean, I had been brought up to believe that you suffered for your principles. And I didn't in this case, but I was prepared to.
4: The reinstatement of preview commentary was a great victory for the Public Affairs Department but it was not to be the department's last battle with Ottawa. Five years later, a program called This Hour Has Seven Days would touch off a virtual civil war in the CBC.
0: Tonight on Ideas, turning points in public broadcasting a third of five programs written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Gail Brownell. Archives research, Ken Puley. Producer, Bernie Lucht. And we'd like to thank Barbara Fairbairn for her help in researching parts of tonight's program. You can get a printed transcript of this series. It costs $5, and what you do is this. Send a check or money order to CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.